2: luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: This week, the British Library announced plans to expand but also demolish one of its most important buildings. Protesters tunnelled under Euston Square in an act of defiance against HS2, and the Mayor of London warned that the COVID-19 pandemic could kill the centre of London unless recovery plans are put in place. Hello, my name's Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist, and I'm going to talk you through the big stories in architecture and built environment concerning London this week. I'm joined by Open City Director Phineas Harper to discuss these issues. Welcome to the show, Finn. Thanks, Merlin. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, exciting to be here. So the first big story that's been going on is to do with Euston Square and the protest camp uh, against HS2. Now, what's happened is a group of protesters who are protesting against the construction of the new high-speed railway line through some ancient forest land outside of London have occupied Euston Square. And if you ever travelled along uh, the Euston Road, you've probably seen Euston Square. It's uh, a bunch of trees uh, right outside the Euston train station. Uh, Typically, there was absolutely nothing going on in Euston Square. But in recent times, you may have seen some tents there. Uh, And what's happened is while there were some tents there, just being tents, not really doing much, uh, some people dug down and then dug across and they effectively created a kind of impromptu mine, a bit like uh, an image uh, that you might see in a film of like a coal mine or a gold mine in Weston or something like that, with all these timbers propping it up uh so they've they've done that uh, entirely off their own bat uh, as an act of defiance against the construction of the high speed 2 railway line uh, and they've gone into the uh, the tunnel uh, and they've secured themselves in the tunnel and now it's a kind of epic battle uh between uh the uh, HS2 which wishes to take take ownership of this land in order to to build the HS2 railway line, which will require Euston train station next door to be a little bit larger and there to be some sort of staging grounds for construction and so forth. Um, and the protesters, who are not ne- not really so much protesting about this particular bit of land. They're not particularly protesting about the trees there, although uh, the, the fate of those trees is not exactly certain. Uh, they're protesting against uh, the destruction of uh, some genuinely ancient uh, forest land. Uh Beyond London, in the sort of territory between London uh, and Birmingham, and going on where this railway line uh will be built. Um, I think this is a really fascinating story because it opens up a lot of questions about uh, the built environment, the changes to our built environment and where citizens get involved in it. And particularly, this is really interesting because one of the activists is a fellow who goes by the name of Swampy. And Swampy, uh, for many people listening, will probably remember the name. He was quite famous in the 1990s. In the 1990s, he was protesting about a road expansion project in Devon. And um, there was a lot of environmentalism against road building at the time. And it's very interesting to think that in the past, this kind of activism was focused on in rural places, and it was to do with car use. And right now, this sort of protest is happening right in the centre of a major city, and it's to do with train use. And interestingly, cities is comparatively a more sustainable way of living than in the countryside, because in cities, we kind of pool resources together. You know, the big, the big truck brings the food to the shops, So everyone can walk to the shop rather than everyone having to drive 25 miles to get to the shop or however far it is. Uh, And also, again, trains. Trains are, um, you know, it's it's a big it's a big machine that we all pile into and we travel together. And that machine in aggregate uses less energy than each of us having our own machine and its own petrol source. So um, there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting stuff to be said about that, and then the other the other one particularly is just that little bit of land in Euston uh, Euston Square because obviously he's protesting and saying uh, effectively you you can't take ownership of this land because we're in the tunnel uh, you're going to have to get us out of there safely and you're going to need an injunction from a judge and all this kind of stuff. Um, but also, what is the future of that bit of land? I bet you a lot of people listening in on this right now probably wouldn't probably wouldn't know exactly what's happening with the future of Houston uh, Square that bit of land. Finn, what do you think about the fact that so many people are not really going to have a much knowledge at all about what's going to happen with 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 Houston Square?
2: Um I think this is a a story which um connects quite directly to uh the way that architecture is uh managed in the public discourse because this is a huge project high speed Two. this is one of the biggest infrastructure projects that britain has taken on um you know in in recent times and yet you're absolutely right there's there's actually quite a lot of um confusion about what it means and you know when precisely these these phases of construction will begin which architects are involved in which parts and so on um, all the information is is out there but it, it, it considering the the kind of scale of the the intervention that is um, being undertaken it's kind of surprising how um, it seems like it's kind of happening behind closed doors to an extent and maybe what that that tells us is that is that um, uh, the government kind of understands that HS2 has is, is turned out to be a very controversial project. You might have expected re- re- railway construction to be um, a, an easy win with the with the electorate, especially at a time of climate emergency. But in fact, um, even people in the Green Party are very critical of um, uh, HS2 for 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 the route that it takes, for the ancient woodland it disturbs, for the effect that it has on 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 wildlife um and there are there are some good reasons to be uh critical of the project as well um in terms of what it means for london and, and the kind of urban realm of london and, and for uh, for architects or, or or people who care about the city um i guess it's it it plugs into a longer story doesn't it because euston uh, um was a station originally built in the 1830s um and then demolished and rebuilt uh, in the '60s, and has become kind of emblematic of everything that certain type of person doesn't like about modern architecture. Um, it's become a kind of, um, uh, you know, a, 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 a totem um, for certain kind of heritage campaigners who regret the loss of the older station, who regret the loss of the Euston Arch, this kind of triumphal arch that. Um, used to drive through on your way to this station um, and certainly uh, they have a point, right? The the, the kind of 60s Houston um, station has really uh, declined since its heyday there's been a kind of accretion of um, grubby, grotty concessions stands which has kind of spoiled any uh, original architectural vision that came from the, the, the 1960s um, design and so potentially um, uh, it's because of all those controversies, the, the the difficulty of the the opposition to the line, and the huge feeling around um, that particular site and, and mistakes that were made in the past. Uh, why um, this is not a, a, a um, more in the public eye
0: absolutely and I think it I mean I hazard to sort of question how much the politicians themselves even know about the finer details of this project Um, there was an interesting sort of moment in in the sort of genesis of our democracy in the 19th and early 20th centuries that uh, you know the railway magnates were out there in the fields wandering around with theodolites and like laying out tracks through um, established country seats and it was uh, you know a moment where the countryside was kind of being torn up with these railway lines which now are considered very much like a part of our uh, architectural and almost pretty much like our natural heritage. You know, this is this is what makes Britain. The you know these railway rail lines that go through it. But um, yeah, there's this, there's a, there's a sort of feeling that you know, when it gets to the details of what's actually being proposed here, that um, is it really known well enough? And I think so. I had to look onto. Uh, various different articles this afternoon. I came across a, an excellent resource, New Civil Engineer, and they had an article there which explained exactly what the, the game plan is. There's three phases. So through the high-speed railway line platforms will be built on land to the west of the existing euston station which is um a bit of london uh, where there's a street called drummond street and there's lots of cool restaurants and wholesale food things and there was an architecture practice there and so on so that will be a new station built on top of a little park and a load of beautiful old buildings right the existing station will just stay there right next to that And then in a second phase, that existing station will be redeveloped and with some possibly some skyscrapers and other things put on top of it. And then in a third and final phase, starting in 2027, the bit of land to the south of the station where those trees are, where that protest camp is, will eventually be redeveloped with some kind of epic gateway to the whole thing. However, um, some sort of rejigging of the program uh, means that actually those sort of three-stage thing might not happen. It might all happen in one stage just to save money. But it kind of sh- it goes to show you how uh, you know these, these sort of finer details aren't necessarily always communicated, and that's why when when somebody like Swampy Swampy comes along with his protest. Um, it's, it's your classic uh, it's your classic media stunt, isn't it? So like press, journalism, it used to be full of people doing these stunts. You know, you, you know okay, I'm going to do this thing and then all the journalists are going to pile in and they're going to report on what we're doing. And the, okay, well, if anyone, you know, don't forget, we're living in the middle of a pandemic. So, you know, the headlines are somewhat preoccupied with other more pressing matters. So it does sort of show that, um, you know, what's necessary in order to get media attention right now, uh, but also... Um, it also kind of reflects on the fact that people really don't know enough about this railway line and how it will uh, <laughs> you know will really benefit all of us and have a have some great um uh, uplift to our connections to the rest of the country um although the the poor old 1960s Euston train station and its beautiful elegant open spaces which you need to be quite athletic to get around uh, with those ramps uh, it might just suffer a little bit um moving on okay the second big story of the week in london architecture is if you haven't seen it you need to see it get on google look for these images go actually to the architect's journal which has a brilliant article on this and this is the new extension to the british library anybody who studied in university in london will have been uh, been there many times anybody who loves books anybody who loves the free internet and the exhibitions you've been down to the british library it is an extraordinary building on euston road quite near to this protest we were just discussing. It's designed by Colin St. John Wilson uh, in the 1960s, but it took a very long time to build and only really opened in the 1990s. Uh, It's amazing. Uh, uh, But the big thing we're discussing is the fact that there's been uh, proposals to build an extension to this library. And so the extension will be built to the north of the library, quite near to the entrance to St. Pancras Station, uh, which currently um, that bit of the entrance doesn't really have any good connection to the library so yeah great We need a better connection to the library uh, and the propo- the visuals the vision for what this new extension to the library will look like have been published this week um, uh, have you had a chance to look at them Finn I mean as an architectural critic a man of incisive knowledge and wit on these topics what did what did you think when you saw Richard Rogers proposal for it's
2: uh it 's a surprising move you 'd have thought the British Library uh, would be the kind of the absolute gatekeepers of heritage and of uh, history and that would extend not only to their their collections but to the extraordinary building that they are lucky enough to inhabit and uh, For me, a kind of key part of this um, story is the fact that the extension by um uh, Roger's practice, Roger Stoke Harbour and Partners, will cause the demolition of the British Library Centre for Conservation, which was itself an extension to the original British Library designed by Long and Kentish. Now, Long and Kentish um, w- was a practice uh, run by M. J. Long and Rolf Kentish, and M. J. Long, who sadly has passed away. Uh, worked with um, Colin St John Win- Wilson or Sandy Wilson on the original British Library um, design, so it made perfect sense that when they uh, made their, their their kind of first extension, the the British Library Centre for Conservation, that they they brought MJ back, and um, she's kind of one of one of the great female British architects, one of the great British architects, frankly, um, to have worked in London. And, and this was one of her, 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 her greatest achievements, both the original building and then this extension. Um, and for me, um, I haven't got so far into kind of critiquing the, the, the Roger Stoke Harbour and Partners new proposal. But the demolition of MJ, uh, MJ Long's extension seems to be a, a real travesty. And, and um, I'm very disappointed that that is currently the, the, the option that is on the table.
0: Absolutely. And I think certainly, obviously, we're open city, we're coming from the perspective of open house, we're about celebrating London's architectural heritage. And so, you know, this, this building, which many of you listeners might not have heard about, is a really important part of London's architectural heritage, and MJ Long is a really important architect. So we certainly, uh, it certainly does raise some eyebrows. And when you think about the fact that this is such an important building to just demolish it, to build another building, uh, it's, it, it certainly raises some questions. Now, this, now the the proposed building, which is by Rogers Stirk Harbour and Partners the practice founded by Richard Rogers an architect who lives in London, who designed the Lloyds building, uh, who designed a famously beautiful modernist house for his parents next to Wimbledon Common, um, who's designed various amazing civic buildings around the world. Obviously, when you think about it, you know, all of this makes perfect sense to to hire an architect like this to design another civic building. You know, London, uh, we love our civic buildings, whether it's the Great Court at the British Museum, uh, or the National Gallery and the extension there, uh, and, and the take modern you know so so obviously we have a great tradition of civic buildings and we want uh, you know th- this is what makes our city a great place to live however, What's happened here is that the uh, the land to the north of the British Library is land owned by the British Library, and it was always, you know, it's obviously um, considered to be expansion land. You know, libraries, by their very nature, especially reference libraries, they get more and more books every year. And um, you know, we're living in such a brilliant age where people are studying more and more. And uh, you know, it's it's great that libraries expand. Like this is this is brilliant. It's a sign of a, it's a good thing. Uh, but obviously, because of the nature of the way that projects work major civic projects work we have this kind of approach this public private approach and so this idea is that if you own some land and you're a public body you can't just go and build something on it what you need to do is find a private partner and this private partner in this case is Schroder's they're a a, a property developer very good at developing commercial offices they did some um, uh, all over the country Uh, you know they're, they're they're that's what they do and so they've entered into an agreement with these joint venture partners. And the, the idea is, is that the joint venture partners uh, find the money and they build something and that that's something that they build, delivers what the public client wants. In this case, they want a bit of a bigger library and then the, the to pay for it will be some office buildings. So, you know, that that that, that all uh, that is a way of doing things. The question is, is it necessarily the right way of doing things uh, for this particular bit of land? What it means is that the proposed... ...development is just a giant office block... ...and it just looks like a giant office block... ...and apparently there's a library in there somewhere, okay... And obviously there will be a library in there and the facilities probably will be amazing, but is this the right way of delivering civic projects? Could you imagine the Tate modern as a giant office block with a library hidden somewhere? Oh, sorry, with a museum art museum hidden somewhere in there. No, it's amazing because it's this raw, big, um, you know, museum to art. Okay. That's what makes it exciting. The same with the national gallery and the same with, with some of these other places we've referenced the, you know, the British museum Would that have worked if someone had just chucked a whole load of offices on top of it. No, sometimes, uh, yeah, we have to sort of focus on the raw thing at hand. So I think that uh, certainly that is one criticism of it. And the other thing is the architecture itself, uh, although um, it really is. It's just an office building. So that's that's pretty much all that needs to be said to describe it.
2: Yeah. I think that the context um, is, is important because, of course, we've been experimenting with ways of, of kind of uh, using uh, private development to subsidize um, public Development or, or, or architecture for the public good um, for a number of decades, and there's some big flaws in that model. And uh, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, is currently moving the entire operations of his of of, of the London Assembly from City Hall into um, a building in um, in the East by the Royal Docks. Now they're doing that because uh, when City Hall was built, it was built under a, 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 not the same, but a a, a similar scheme where you you use private sector money to build uh, a public building in the short term. So you get nice, good new facilities, um, which is City Hall, which is designed by Norman Foster, uh, Foster and Partners. Um, But then there's this kind of catch which kicks in later where the public then have to rent that building um, to continue using it. And what seems to have happened is that the mayor has has decided that although this building was commissioned specifically to be London's City Hall, the the, the kind of centre of London's government, it's not worth the amount of money that uh, we as London taxpayers or or he as the London mayor has to uh, pay to continue using it. And so they're actually decamping to (laughs) to a completely different building. So um, it really feels like this model of subsidising um, public projects with big private projects it's, it's kind of falling apart uh, and, and you know we can see that even in in the like the highest um, seat of, of, of government within London's administration and so you've got to ask how much longer can can we continue this kind of model and why is the British Library still going in for that that kind of um, development uh, uh, financing model.
0: Discussing the Mayor of London sort of brings us on to, our, to the last story, which I think is a really, really big story in London architecture and London-built environment. And So what it is is that the Mayor of London issued a report uh, this week. And in this report, he effectively warned that the, the London's CAZ, London's Central Activity Zone, the centre of it, is facing a bigger challenge than many other cities around the world. So whereas places like New York and Paris, even during the epidemic, this pandemic, they um, they had a bit of a bounce back over the summer. People came back into the centre. They had fun. Uh, there was you know activity and buzz. The centre of London, the centre of London really didn't have a kind of re- revitalisation. And it, and he says the reason this is is because so much of the activity in the centre of London is active, is linked to office workers and people who work there who are now working from home in. Outer or inner outer suburban locations all around the capital um and um and to do with tourism okay so look i'm sure many of the people listening to this you know you've been to the city of center in the last few years and you probably say yeah there's, there's a good tourist buzz here you know there's loads of people and they look like they're having a great time and there's also there's lots of people coming and going from their offices and there's all the ca- the, the uh, sandwich shops obviously you know, the Prets and so on and so forth uh, but there's also like the theaters and the bars and some really cool art galleries that would stay open late on a friday and saturday night you know these were amazing civic activities and 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 there was about 26,000 jobs involved in that, which are now, according to the mayor, at risk, right? Uh, But he's, he's saying that, hey, we need to think really, really, really careful about this because this kind of impact that's happened is potentially a lasting impact, okay? So he thinks that we could actually be in a situation where there are years and years of the centre of London struggling to recover and certainly anecdotally many of us would have heard about friends or associates who've relocated a bit further out of London or gone to stay with their parents and so on and so forth I mean I, I live in Tooting, Tooting is busy, it's way busier than it used to be um, because obviously people are here rather than in the centre but I've been to the centre and it, it's pretty empty, I mean you know, Finn, anecdotally do you think there might be some truth in, in what our Mayor Sadiq Khan is saying about this? I mean it's,
2: it's- Uh, We've been talking about the decline of the high street and the the decline of the kind of urban centre or the city centre for a long time. Um, And uh, I find it a a frustrating conversation to to some extent because, yes, of course, you know, the internet has come along and that's disrupted um, all these traditional um, shopping patterns Um, And, you know, COVID has like only amplified that where far more of us uh, have figured out ways to work from home if we're able to. Far more of us have fallen in love with online shopping and and that might continue for a long time. But um, the real problem behind... Uh, the, the decline in the high street is the rental value of the land that the high street is built on. And I think that's especially true of somewhere like London, where the centre of London is so enormously expensive. Actually, there's an enormous number of people who want to do stuff in the centre of cities or the centre of urban uh, clusters. They don't do it because they can't afford the rents there, right? And the, the solution to um, high street regeneration after COVID um, is also the solution to high street regeneration in general, which is that we have to to rebalance this equation so that we're able to have all sorts of stuff taking place in urban centres that is currently priced out so I'm talking about um, community functions I'm talking about religious functions I'm I'm talking about small factories I'm talking about art spaces the kinds of things that get pushed out into industrial land on the edge of town need to be brought back into the centre because there's enormous demand people really want to do that stuff imagine if you could have um Churches and mosques and temples on the high street in the centre of town. The only thing that's stopping them from doing that is uh, they can't afford it. Um, So yes, on the one hand, I I, I agree that you know the 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 mayor is right to identify this as 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 a big threat to the kind of business model of 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 central London. But on the other hand, I think the um, all the kind of possibilities are already there, and actually a lot of them, all the research. Uh, to generate those ideas of like what could you do in a high street have been funded by the GLA, funded by um, the mayor. So if you take a look at uh, there's architects like We Made That, for example, who do a lot of, um, uh, kind of urban research but also high street regeneration projects, they produced a report called High Streets for All, which is all about the social value of high streets and how to stop thinking of high streets purely as a kind of economic generator and, and say, you know, what, what what cultural, what civic, what social value do we get out of these places? And how could that become the frame through which we see the success of the high street instead of just economic value and footfall? There's other projects by uh, practices like Assemble. They did a report in 2012 called Make, Don't Make, Do that was looking at... Um, Uh, another high street in East London and and, and trying to think of lots of different kinds of creative stuff that you could do with that high street so I I feel like all the answers are out there but they do require us to to rebalance this equation about how we fund, uh, how we pay for the rental of land in urban centres
0: You need an imaginative approach to these spaces. And it's great to hear that there's architects out there who are using their imagination and thinking what could these pieces be like. And in many ways, it's not even futuristic. It's looking to the past because if you think about the city of London, if you think about Covent Garden, these were productive places. There were loads of people doing all kinds of things there and all kinds of levels of the rich and the poor and everybody, you know. So it wasn't these were not sort of monocultural uh salubrious kind of prestigious zones it was it was where the the raw life of the city happened and it's where say i live in tooting tooting there's everything's going on here and it's great i love it and there's you can say somewhere like croydon there's all kinds of variety you've got the big department stores and the tiny street market you know that's the kind of buzz that you're saying but also it's about people as well you know everybody listening to this right now uh could you know is going to have an imaginative idea for what could happen to the debenham store which is sadly closing you know or the, or the or the what you know, what's going to happen for the um the top shop store on oxford circus you know their top shop store on oxford circus could be a cool um fashion academy where everyone goes in and can repair learn how to repair a hole in their shirt or uh, you know fix their trainers or like yeah you know, do you see what i mean there's so many amazing things and th- th- what was so frustrating about london sometimes in this kind of era where the land was getting more and more valuable was that these weird unusual Progressive, different things that move things forward were priced out because you couldn't get any land. You couldn't get a little shop front in Covent Garden to to try out your weird fashion brand. Yeah, do you see what I mean? It yeah, it's it's really heartening to hear you say that.
2: We're going to try and do this show once a week, just rounding up the kind of key issues that are facing um, architects across this city. Uh, we'd love your feedback. We'd love you to like the show and share the show. This we we do a much longer um show called the open city podcast which is uh more like narrative lab journalism interviews with with fascinating people from across the city and stories about london's past present and future but this is more of a kind of short sharp hit of uh news and current affairs directly relevant to the practice of architecture and the kind of debates that people would normally be having around the water cooler and are instead having to have over zoom um so thank you for listening and uh see you again this time next week
0: You've been listening to a news roundup by Open City London, the charity that wants to make London more open, equitable and accessible. Get in touch with us at Open City London on Twitter. We want to hear what you think, what you want us to be discussing next week. Thank you for listening.